So we're in week 20 of our series on the parables that Jesus spoke, and today we're going to deal with the parable of the talents. Now, you may remember two weeks ago, we learned about the wise and foolish bridesmaids. Remember them? The foolish bridesmaids were the unbelievers that were not ready for the return of Christ. And it was because of their unbelief. Now, in today's parable of the talents, we're going to deal with, again, the Lord's return. And we find an unbeliever that was not ready for the Lord's return. We also find two believers that are ready for the Lord's return. And we'll find out why and how they live in expectation. So we're going to start off in Matthew 25, picking up in verse 14. Am I good out there as far as sound? Everybody here? Good. Okay, Matthew 25, verse 14, it says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So the first question we have to ask is this, well, what in the world is a talent, okay? Because most of us probably wouldn't know what a talent is. But in that day, a talent was a measure of weight in a precious metal, such as gold or silver. It would weigh between 50 and 70 pounds. So needless to say, a talent was worth a significant amount of money. In today's dollars, 70 pounds of gold or one talent would be roughly $1.7 million. Very wealthy person here, okay? Very trusting as well. So one talent would be worth like $1.7 million. So who gets the talents? Well, obviously in this passage, the servants. The identity of these servants is not known, but we're going to piece it all together when we break down the spiritual meaning of the parable. So let's find out what these servants did with their talents. In verse 16, it says, He who had received the five talents went out at once and traded them and made five more talents. So also he who had received two talents made two more. But the one who had received one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. So five. The, now we have two servants that wisely invested and doubled their talents that they were entrusted with. And then one buried his talent that he was entrusted with so he would not lose it. So let's think about this for a few minutes, okay? If you were the master, how would you feel about each of these servants? If you were the master, how would you feel? I mean, if you gave that much money to three guys and two of them doubled your money, you'd probably be pretty happy, right? And if you remember, he gave these talents each according to their ability. So probably the first two, he was thinking, all right, you know what? I knew you were wise and you did well with the money. And maybe you would look at the last guy and say, eh, the reason why I didn't give you much is because eh, I'm not really too sure about your abilities here. So I'm just going to give you one. You might just be like, eh, you know, okay, I got my talent back. Well, let's find out exactly how the master reacted. In verse 19, it says this. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came to settle accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. 
I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also went to the one with two talents and came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, as you would expect, the master was very happy with the first two servants. They doubled what he left them in charge of, and the result was they were invited to enter the joy of their master, which in this context probably means you'll have all your needs met and the master will take care of you. I mean, think about this. They doubled the money, okay? So, of course, the master is like, I am taking care of you guys. You're not going to have a care in the world. Enter into the joy of this master. Now we move to the servant that buried the talent. Now, he also received one talent and came forward saying, in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to, have, ought to have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So this master, he wasn't like, eh, I got my money back. He was mad, okay? And he was mad. And the reason why the master was mad is because he told the servant, you could at least have put the money in the bank and it gained interest. Now, just to put this into perspective, if a talent was worth $1.7 million at a whopping half a percent interest, which most of you probably have in your checking account or savings account today, at a whopping half a percent interest, we're looking at $700 a month. So think about this for a second. We don't know how long this guy went away, but it said he went away for some time. So this last guy, basically just took that money and literally stuck it in a mattress. Didn't even put it in a place where he could actually gain some interest. So obviously, the master was pretty upset. He was pretty upset because instead, instead he gave this, this uh, servant an opportunity to wisely invest and make a return, and he did not wisely invest, and there was no return. Now remember, the servant that received two talents and doubled it essentially received the same reward as the one that received five talents. And that was a promise of more responsibilities and being in the master's joy. Okay, so the reward for the two-talent guy and the five-talent guy was essentially the same. So basically, if the man was in charge of one talent and did the same thing, he would have had the same reward as the other two, which was entering into his master's joy, being put in charge of more. Okay. So now notice what the servant did when the master came back. Okay. This is important to the whole context of the parable. His reason for not investing was that the master was a difficult man. Notice what this servant did. So the master came up to him and said, hey, what'd you do with this? And he said, I buried it, and here's the reason why. Because you're a hard man, and I knew that, you know, this was going to be difficult. So basically, I just 
buried it because I was afraid of you. Okay? So notice, essentially, he was blaming the master for his decision not to invest, not to put it in the bank, not to really do anything helpful with it. Remember that because we're going to return to that when we start to talk about the spiritual uh, context of this parable. So now we're going to find out what the master did. So here's what he did to the one servant. He said, so take the talent from him, give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, for, for, excuse me, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast out the worthless servant into the outer darkness in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds pretty harsh. Okay? So he had a servant in his house that wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, buried a talent. Okay? Now, all of a sudden, the punishment becomes, I'm going to take what you have, give it to somebody else, and I'm going to throw you out of the protection of the master. It sounds very harsh. So now we have to break this all down. What in the world does this parable mean? So we're going to look at the uh, spiritual significance of it. So we're going to start off with the master. I'll give you a few guesses on who you think the master is in this parable. Okay, I guess you're going get, to get it right on the first one. It's Jesus, okay? The master is Jesus. The time period between the master leaving and returning is guess what? It's now, okay? It's this time period. It's between the first and second coming of Christ, okay? So Jesus came once, right? Died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and now we await him coming back. And that's really the context of this entire parable is really being ready for the return of Christ. The talent, okay, what is the talent here? The talent is the work that we are put on this earth to do with the gifts and abilities we have to do them for the purpose of benefiting the Lord. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It's the work we are put here on this earth to do with the gifts and abilities we have to do them for the purpose of benefiting the Lord. Now, who are the servants? Well, this is where it gets really tricky because when you hear servant, you automatically think, okay, this must be talking about believers. Because as believers, a lot of times we consider ourselves, what, servants of the Lord. So it gets a little tricky because as we read the parable, we come to the servant that had one talent and he buried it. And his ultimate punishment for bad management was to be cast into outer darkness. So if this servant represents a believer, we have a huge theological problem. Wouldn't you agree? That's a huge problem. Okay, If any of you who know the scriptures... That's a huge problem if all of a sudden this believer gets cast into outer darkness. Well, the truth is, that can't be the case. This servant cannot be a believer and lose his salvation for making a bad choice. Because we learn that when a person trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, that he rose from the grave to prove that he's God, the moment a person believes in Jesus, they receive eternal life. We receive eternal life. Now, there's the doctrine of eternal security that we know from John 10, from Ephesians 4, and Romans 8, that basically tells us we can never lose 
our salvation. So clearly this final servant can't be a believer. So since the final servant represents an unbeliever, what is actually happening to them spiritually? First, I want to answer what's actually happening, this cast into outer darkness. Romans 2, 5 through 8 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, had, who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So basically what this passage is speaking about is the servant that buried the talent, the unbeliever, and he tells us they receive the wrath they deserve because of their hard heart. See, no one likes to hear this, and this is where our culture, people blame God and say things like, well, that's very unfair and unloving. But remember what this servant said to the master when he came back. Remember what he said? What did he say to him? Did he say, oh, I'm sorry. You know what? You're right. I should have invested it. What did he say? He said, no, I know you're a hard man. You're difficult to deal with, basically, is what he said. So he waged, waged accusations of untruths about the master, saying he was a difficult man, and essentially saying, it's your fault that I buried this talent. So if someone rejects the gospel, it is their own fault, fault that they did not accept the gift of God. They can't blame God. Now, Romans 2 also talks about the first two servants, and it says to those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So the first two servants trusted the master. Now, this is where it gets tricky as well, because it almost seems like, okay, if you do the right thing, then you receive eternal life. But listen to me. It says the first, basically the first two servants trusted the master, and that's why they responded the way that they did. They knew that the master trusted them, with something valuable, and as a response of loyalty and responsibility, they made wise choices to use those talents in the way that they did. They were inspired and encouraged by the master. Now think about this. As believers, our faith in the Lord should inspire us to follow the Lord to please him. And guess what? The result is eternal rewards. Now, let's break down what the master said. His master said to him for the first two servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So now we have these two servants. He says the same thing to. So let's start with the last phrase, enter into the joy of your master. This shows that the servant had faith, and part of the outworking of that faith was listening to the master. Now, don't forget that. Part of the outworking of our faith is actually listening to God. You know, we know a lot of Christians, right? We know a lot of Christians are like, oh, I have strong faith. And their life is a train wreck. They're living in sin. They're doing the wrong thing. And people are looking and saying, maybe you're looking and saying, oh, you have strong faith, do you? Okay? I don't really see any real proof. 
So listening to the master does not gain the servant's salvation, but the fact that the servant lis- listened and acted shows the, mas- shows the servant actually trusts the master. Just like when we listen and obey, it shows God and the people around us that we have faith and following him is the best thing to do. Now, many of you remember, you might, some of you might not remember, but many of you do remember. Remember when Abraham offered up Isaac? God told him, he said, go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. And you're reading this story. I don't know why we teach Sunday school kids. This is the most terrifying thing in the world. You know, oh, go, go sacrifice your son up on this mountain. So Abraham went and, you know, right before he was about to put a dagger in the chest of his son, like I said, terrifying for Sunday school, right before he's about to do this, God says, no, stop. Now I know you believe. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God already knew he believed? I think so, okay? If God knows everything, I think he already knew. But God knew that he would offer his son up, and that gave Abraham the opportunity to demonstrate his faith before God and also before people. So now in this second phrase, in what he says to the first two servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Okay, because of the faithfulness of the servants, now the servant can be trusted with more. Now, this is twofold. This, I believe, is here in this life. God will trust you with more. And you know that's that's the, the normal outworking of things. When you're wise and faithful in small things, right, God seems to bless you with some other things. And then he sees that you're wise and faithful with that, and then he continues to bless. And, you know, you've heard people say things like, you can't outgive God. You can't be too generous to God because God will continue to open up his floodgates. And that's true. But it is twofold because it's also specifically for the next life. Now, this is where the doctrine of eternal rewards comes into play. Because basically what happens is for everything that we do here on this earth that is good, to benefit the Lord, God will reward you in eternity. Now, this obviously causes some questions because people say, well, isn't heaven perfect? And if other people have more stuff than me, I'm going to be jealous. So heaven can't be perfect. So how do we harmonize that? Well, I'll tell you how you harmonize that. Most of those rewards are actually to be used during the millennial reign of Christ, which is found in Revelation chapter 20. And those rewards are responsibilities as we reign with him, okay? There's a very good book written by actually one of my professors out at school. His name's Paul Benware. It's called The Believer's Payday. And he talks about the doctrine of eternal rewards. Now, another thing that's not popular in our culture because people want to minimize the playing field, right? You know, oh, we're all the same. And nobody, there's, there's no rewards for anything good that you know there is, okay? God actually rewards his faithful servants. One of the passages that talks about these eternal rewards is 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. It says this, So whether you are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, 
whether good or evil. Notice that, okay? We, we receive reward for the good that we do. Now, you may be wondering if the last servant was not a believer, how in the world did he get a talent in the first place? Because as, as we're going through this, we're hearing, okay, these first two, they're believers. They got these talents. They were entrusted. Like, how in the world did this unbeliever wound up, wind up with a talent? Well, the truth is, let me explain. A talent should not be confused with spiritual gifts. Those are things that we receive through the Holy Spirit that are to serve the body of Christ. Those are only for believers and at the telling of this parable, think about this for a second, at the telling of this parable, they were not even something people would understand because guess what? The Holy Spirit was not given yet. Jesus was still on the earth. The cross did not happen. Pentecost did not happen yet. So remember, a talent, remember I said this in the beginning, is the work we are put on earth to do with the gifts and abilities we have to do them so God gives all people talents, and how we use them is what he's looking for. See, an unbeliever needs to come to a conclusion that their talents were given to them by God. You ever know people that have a lot of resources, they're good at things, they're good, you, know, you know people like that, and they're not believers. And you might look at them and think like, man, they are so blessed. And they might look at themselves and say, wow. Someone upstairs is blessing me. I know a big term now, like people will say, the universe decided to bless me. I'm like, oh, really? The universe. Okay, the universe? Well, here's the thing. This is difficult for unbelievers to admit that there is a God in the heavens that blessed them with those things. See, most people, and I can see why they would do this, they would say, I earned I'm smart. I achieved. That's what people say. You might even say that as a believer. I earned. I work hard for what? My money. People say that all the time, don't they? Well, the truth is, everything that we have is a blessing from God. Believers and unbelievers alike. So when you see all the unbelievers that you know, all the things that they own, all the resources they have, all the skills and abilities they have are actually a blessing from God. You know what? Maybe you can use that when you're talking to some unbelievers. Hey, where do you think you got that from? Why do you think you're so good at that? That's why we love when, like, you know, some of you are sports fans, when, you know, they win, like, a Super Bowl or something like that, and there's, like, that one Christian on the team, and they're like, I couldn't have did this without Jesus. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, you're, you're genetically blessed, or you train hard at this and that. But, you know, that Christian person is like, yeah, this is a blessing from God. He put me here in this place. Acts 17 says that. He puts people in the places that they should be so that they should seek after God. See, if you're an unbeliever, you need to know this. What you have, what you accomplish, what you earned is all a gift of God. And those gifts are to get your attention to make you realize that you should trust him. Now, believers... We should be using our talents for the purpose of benefiting the work of the Lord. So whatever you're good at, whatever God has blessed you with, you should be using that for the benefit of the Lord. We will be rewarded in this life for using those talents, 
but we'll also be rewarded in the next, more specifically, like I said before, the millennial reign of Christ. Because at that point, we'll see the fruit of the fullness of using those gifts. So here's what I want to do. I want to close by giving you some homework, okay? I normally don't give homework. I never really liked homework growing up, okay? Normally don't give homework. I hope that people take it when I give it. But you might be wondering, what are the talents that God has given me? Like, what are the talents? What are the things, the resources, the abilities that God has given me? And how can I use those things to benefit the work of the Lord? So this is for you to figure out. So here's your homework. You don't even have to write it down because you'll probably remember it. And you're just going to answer these couple questions. What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? Notice I said that. What do I enjoy doing? You know, one of the talents that you might have could be something that you just enjoy doing. I mean, you talk to people all the time. They're an engineer or they do some job that you don't understand what it is they do. And they're like, I love my job. And you're like, I don't even understand what they do at work. But they love it. And they do it every day. Now, how can you use that to benefit the Lord? So what am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? What are my resources? This is so important, especially for us in America. We are so blessed. Even the poorest of us in America are so blessed. So what are my resources? And then the final question is this. How can I use all these to benefit the work of the Lord? How can I use these things? Like, what is God saying to me? What is God? He's giving me these things. Is he saying just eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you'll die? I don't think he's saying that, okay? Because now when we look at this parable of the talents, we see those first two workers said, you know what? God, you've given me these talents. I'm going to give you a return on what you've blessed me with.